It's been said that we all live to please someone. Who are you living to please? We're continuing our study through the letter of 1 Thessalonians today. And the Apostle Paul has spent much of his time in chapters 2 and 3 defending himself against critics. Beginning in chapter 4, which is where we'll be at this morning, Paul focuses his attention on things the believers in the church there are dealing with in their lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in the first verse. It says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul, he begins his exhortation to live in a way that pleases God by encouraging them, telling them they're already living in a way that pleases God. You're doing great. You're doing it. God is pleased with you. And what wonderful words these must have been for these new believers, these new followers of Jesus to hear. Something that all believers want to do is please God. We want to please our Heavenly Father and to hear someone who speaks with the authority of the Lord that we are living in a way that pleases Him would make our hearts sing, wouldn't it? Now, I don't have the authority of an apostle. I am a nobody. But I would like to tell you that you're living in a way that pleases the Lord. You're doing great. And I want to encourage you to do it more and more, just as the Apostle Paul is telling them. Paul tells them that he has already taught them how to live to please God when he was with them at the church in Thessalonica. He doesn't have anything new to tell them In that regard, he's already told them these things. He doesn't have new information to give them. Instead, he's urging them to keep doing the same things they've already been doing more and more. Keep on doing these same things more consistently, more persistently, more increasingly. I believe it was George MacDonald who said, God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. And that's the idea that we have here in these opening verses. The Lord is easily pleased with the progress that we make in our growth in becoming more like Jesus in character. But He is always, always calling us forward to become more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Some believers, though, they're always looking for some new secret sauce, a new program, a new method and activity and experience that will unlock the power that they have been missing for living a victorious Christian life. The things needed to live a life that is pleasing to God are not complicated and they're not hard to find and discover. And the list of the stuff doesn't keep growing and expanding and getting more convoluted. Just like Paul tells the Christians of Thessalonica that they already know what to do, I would suggest that the vast majority of people here 
already know what to do too. You may not want to hear this, but a lack of knowledge is not usually our problem. It's not because we're missing some important bit of information that will unlock the secret. Our problem is a failure to consistently put into practice what we already know. We already know how we're to live. We need to do it and keep doing it. See, we don't have a knowledge problem. We have an obedience problem. We're simply not living out the moral imperatives of the Christian life consistently, persistently, increasingly. We need to do what we know we should do more and more. It takes a lifetime to build a godly character. It's a lifelong pursuit of doing the same right things over and over again in one context after another, applying and reapplying the same godly principles, following in the same footsteps of Jesus through every situation of life. There's a book by Eugene Peterson, and the title of the book alone captures this idea that we're talking about. The title of the book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's what we're talking about. Paul, he moves from this general exhortation to live a life that is pleasing to God to some specifics. In verse 3a, he says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. A question often asked by us is, what is God's will for me? In verse 3, this first sentence of it, it answers that question. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, holy, dedicated to the Lord in how we live our life. What does that mean to be sanctified, to be holy? Well, let's read on. He gives us more detail about that. What we are going to read in the rest of this passage is not a complete description of how a person lives a holy life, but this particular area of our life where we are called by God to live a holy and sanctified way is an important aspect of living a life that is pleasing to God, living a holy life. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. What we're being told to do here is really pretty clear and easily understood, isn't it? And I would venture to guess that there are very few of us, if any of us, who can honestly say that this is the very first time that we have ever heard this. In other words, this is not new information for us. We already knew this was the command of God. So to repeat, 
a point that was made a bit ago in the first two verses of this chapter. We don't have a knowledge problem. We have an obedience problem. But to ensure that we all understand what we are being called to do in this passage, let's spend a little bit of time looking at it. The first thing I want to draw our attention to is what is said in verse 8. This command to pursue sexual purity is not from a prudish, out-of-touch apostle or some Victorian-era church tradition. This command is coming from God. And anyone who rejects this command is rejecting God. Verse 8. The very same God who gives us His Holy Spirit is, which is the means and the power for us to obey this command, that's the God who's given us this command. In verse 8, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Well, having established that this is a command of the Lord Himself, rather than some kind of out-of-date cultural holdover of a bygone era, let's set this command into the cultural situation of the times when Paul first wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul is writing this letter from the city of Corinth to the believers in the city of Thessalonica. Both of those cities were renowned at that time for their immoral behavior, which was built into the very fabric of their pagan religion's fertility ceremonies and into their greater culture. People often think that our own culture is the most liberal and progressive and promiscuous in history in regard to sexual attitudes and behaviors. But that isn't true when it is compared to first century Greek and Roman cultures. The Thessalonian Christians lived in a very promiscuous, anything-goes type culture. And into that environment, Paul writes these words that we have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3-8. through eight. See, anyone objecting to the sexual morals given in this passage saying, uh, you know, this is just not reasonable to expect a person in our day to live with such restrictions. You need to know that these morals were every bit as restrictive and difficult for the believers of Paul's day as they are in our day. And it ran counter to their culture just as much in their day as it does in our day. They didn't have it easier than we do. We're told to avoid sexual immorality. Well, what does that mean? The Greek word translated sexual immorality here is porneia. You may recognize the root of that word. We get our English word pornography from this same root word. At that time, Porneia referred to any kind, type, form of sexual immorality as commonly understood. Because we have a mixed audience with small children present, whether it's here in the room with us or through the live stream, I'm not going to go into any kind of detail about these things. 
Based on my understanding of what the Bible teaches, the only acceptable context for sex is within the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Any other context for this activity is considered sexual immorality. I know this is hard for some of you to accept. I know that this runs counter to the prevailing attitudes of our culture. When I was a new believer, I found the restrictions of Christianity in this area to be one of the most difficult aspects to accept. The Bible says that a man and a woman become one flesh in Genesis 2.24. We don't fully understand what this means, but there is no such thing as casual sex. Sex means something. The Bible suggests that there is something that takes place on a soul level. God has commanded us not to have sex with anyone other than our spouse. We need to trust Him about that and obey Him whether we understand it in the moment or not. Followers of Jesus don't modify the teachings of the Bible to accommodate the morals of the culture they're living in. They modify their behavior to bring it in line with the teachings of the Bible. And as I said, this was a difficult thing for the believers in first century Thessalonica as much as it ever is for us in our day. As a follower of Jesus, it says we are to learn to control our own body in a way that is holy and honorable rather than engaging in passionate lust like those who don't know the Lord. This goes for all of us. Whether we're single or married, self-control, living in a holy, honorable way, is to be the goal that we are all aiming for, to live in a holy, honorable way. Gratifying our physical desires is not a goal that's listed in the passage here. That's not one of the things that we're to be chasing after. Engaging in passionate lust is something we are to avoid, it says here. And if we think about what it means to engage in passionate lust, then it seems obvious that this takes pornography off of the table of acceptable things for us to be involved in as well. Verse 6 is interesting. It says, in the context of discussing sexual purity and immoral, immorality, it, it seems to say that the Lord considers it a great sin to exploit another person, to deceive another person, to forcibly use another person for one's own pleasure. We should always treat one another in a holy and honorable way. And I think it's interesting that rather than the Bible sexual morals being behind the times, this verse puts the Bible ahead of the times in the context of the Me Too movement. Because if there was ever a Bible verse that could be used, this would be it for that. The exploitation of another human being will bring the judgment of God. That's what Paul says. Verse 7 makes the point again that our life objective should 
not be to gratify our physical desires, but to live a holy life, a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, obviously, we've not talked about a lot of the considerations and issues surrounding this topic this morning. And for those of you who are interested, I have talked about these things in more detail in a teaching on Mark chapter 10, the first 12 verses a few years ago, which you can access on the website if you're wanting to get uh, a little further into this whole topic and what the scripture teaches. Uh, I put that up on the screen for those of you uh, who are interested in that <coughs> so that you can find it. You can just go to our website, go under the media tab there, and then you can browse through that. There's a way to search there and just put in, you know, Mark 10, 1 through 12, uh, or October 26, 2014. Either of those or both of those will work, and it'll bring up the teaching. It's both uh, as an audio and as a video teaching. So that's available to you. All right. Verse 9, <coughs> Paul turns to loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ now. He says, now, about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. He says, you've been taught by God to love each other. There is an intuitive sense that the Lord puts into us when we are born again by the Spirit of God that there is a new connection between us and fellow believers. We have a new love for one another that begins growing in us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and He brings us to life spiritually. And those of you who have had that experience, you know what I'm talking about. You go, yeah, that, I, I remember. That's exactly what happened. It's like I was woken up. And all of a sudden, I had a new kind of love for people that I would not have loved before. We need instructions about how to carry that love out between us, but that love is brought to life in us by the Spirit of God. Love for one another is an evidence of this new spiritual life that is in us. Paul, he again gives the believers in Thessalonica these very encouraging words, telling them that they have been loving all of God's family throughout Macedonia. This beautiful work of the Lord has been happening in their lives. But in a similar way as verse 1 and 2, he uses that same phrase as before, urging them to love more and more. And we're reminded again of what George MacDonald said. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. He wants us to keep loving and love more and more. Paul urges us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ more and more. This is that same term. Uh, love more consistently, more persistently, more committedly, more increasingly, more inclusively. We want our love to not only increase for those in our existing circle, but to have that circle continually grow and expand to include brothers and sisters everywhere, reaching across racial and cultural and geographical boundaries. Verse 11, 
immediately on the heels of this appeal to love one another more and more, Paul talks about some other particulars here. In verse 11, he says, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. It's interesting that right here, after talking about loving one another, he says, and lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Support yourself doing your fair share of the work. The implication is that these things are tangible expressions of loving one another. By extension, the opposite of these things is not loving one another. Before we take a look at each of these things that he said here, I want to provide a bit of background information about what's going on in the Thessalonian church, and it helps us uh, follow why Paul brings this stuff up and why he addresses it here. There was apparently a group of the people within the church of Thessalonica who were just idling their time away, not doing much of anything useful, not lending a hand with things, not contributing. Depending on handouts from others, they were quick to tell others how they should be doing things, but not doing it themselves. They were occupied with spiritual things, not feeling obligated to engage in the day-to-day responsibilities of earning a living and contributing to the here and now needs and life of the church. They're described in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 as idle and disruptive. And even after being confronted in this letter by Paul, he will have to confront them again in his second letter. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, he writes, We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Based on other things said in these two Thessalonian letters, it's, it's thought that at least some of these people were convinced that the second coming of Jesus was going to take place at any moment. It was so imminent, in fact, that they saw no point in doing anything other than sit back and wait for the day, wait for the moment. It reminds me a little bit of the scene in the old Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall, where the young Alvy has stopped doing his homework and his mother takes him to the psychiatrist to find out what the deal is and the doctor asks him, why are you not doing your homework? And Alvy's response is, what's the point? The universe is expanding. Jesus may come back today. He may come back today. But in the meantime, we're called to carry out the will of God here and now in every moment that we're given in this life. Whatever the reasons and however they were justifying their behavior, a course correction was in order and Paul gives it to them both in this letter and in the next one. He says in verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. A quiet life, meaning in the sense of a restful, a calm, a stress-free, a peaceful, a settled, not frantic and frenzied life. Being frantic 
overly busy, pushy. It has an appearance of getting things done with the tremendous expenditure of energy taking place, but it's not accomplishing anything other than creating lots of stress. It's like a person who doesn't really know how to swim well, and they're out there in the water, and there's all kinds of thrashing around, splashing and getting everyone around them wet, but they make very little progress, right? And in contrast, a person who is a skilled swimmer makes steady forward progress with very little, if any, splashing. Jesus exemplifies a quiet life more than anyone else who has ever lived. I mean, he had the most important life agenda that anyone ever had. The saving of humanity. I know some of you guys have some very important agendas, but I know it's not as important as the agenda that Jesus had. All the important stuff that I have to do has never been that important. But we never see him in a hurry. He's never stressed out. He's always peaceful. He's always calm. He's always settled. He moves through life with great purpose. But it was not a frantic life filled with worry and anxiousness. Crowds of people were constantly pressing in on him, demanding his attention, pulling him in all directions. His smartphone probably would have just been a constant. As the text messages were coming in and the Instagram posts and the. Although things around him appeared to be completely out of control and in chaos, he was always under control. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Can you think of a more relevant admonition for us in our own day than that? We're so distracted by all of the things that we have let into our life. Just the demands coming from our phones are enough to swallow up every meaningful moment. Text messages, emails, YouTubes, Instagrams, Facebooks, Twitters, TikToks, and on and on and on. We need to turn some of that stuff off and step away from it so our spirit has time to find its anchor in the Lord and his voice can be heard over the din of everything else. Rather than seeing how we can cram just one more thing into our life, let's make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. Next he says, you should mind your own business. Boy, good advice, huh? The group of people in the church at Thessalonica, who are described as idle and disruptive, are certainly guilty of that. It's often people who have too much idle time on their hands who 
take then too much interest in the affairs of others, giving others advice that isn't asked for, judging the behaviors of others, Monday morning quarterbacking the lives of other people. If they had tended to their own business more, they wouldn't have so much time for getting into other people's businesses. As a pastor, I, I get asked by people sometimes, what do you think about what whoever is doing? And my response is often to tell them, I don't really know anything about what whoever is doing. I have enough trouble keeping myself on the right path. I really don't have the time or energy to worry about what whoever is doing. I just don't have any interest in it. Pushing into other people's lives all the time, offering unsolicited advice and suggestions, telling others what they should do, getting into other people's business under the guise of being helpful and caring and concerned. You know, none of that stuff is ever appreciated. It's just not. No one wants it. That's just being a busybody. It reminds me of that insurance commercial that's running now where the guy's trying to train people not to become their parents. And, you know, these people are all like, did that person ask for you to help them? No, they didn't. Mind your own business. Good advice for us. Third, he says, work with your hands. In verse 11, work with your hands. Although the Greeks, as a culture, they deplored manual labor and they tried to relegate it to their slaves as much as possible. When Paul says working with your hands, in this context, it should be taken as an expression referring to supporting ourselves, pulling our own weight, making a contribution, doing our fair share of the work. Paul set an example for them to follow when he was at Thessalonica, supporting himself, pulling his own weight over in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. He wrote, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And then over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, his second letter to these same folks Verse 6, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. 
I love how practical and everyday-ish the Bible is sometimes. Anyone who thinks, oh, the Bible, you know, it's so spiritual and just, you know, kind of out there. It has nothing to say to us about the way we live our life. <laughs> well, you haven't read it then, apparently. Because this gets right into the business, doesn't it? Not pulling our own weight. Not lending a hand. Letting others do the work. Being dependent on others. It makes it harder for everyone, doesn't it? Because whatever you're not doing, the rest of the folks have to pick up the slack. See, instead, we're called to be a blessing rather than a burden. We should seek to give rather than take, to provide for others who have genuine need of help. That's the loving way, helping, giving, providing for. This is what Paul is telling us. Finally, in verse 12, which is where the, the last uh, verse that we'll take a look at today, he ends this passage saying, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. We should live in a, such a way that we earn the respect of not only our own brothers and sisters in the church, but outsiders, unbelievers as well. Well, how do we do that? How do we earn the respect of those outside the church, unbelievers. Well, in the context of this passage, by being a hard-working contributor to the community, rather than being an idle know-it-all, giving advice when it isn't asked for, and sticking our nose in other people's business. Sharing our opinions and giving unasked for advice to people is not the same as sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Christians, let's learn to be better listeners and more sensitive and insightful observers, praying and looking for invitations to speak into other people's lives in a way that builds them up and encourages them and helps them to find the real Jesus. Let's be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's what Paul's telling us. 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says a very similar thing. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The surest way of dealing with the criticism of hypocrisy is to not be one. In closing, brothers and sisters, let's live lives that are pleasing to God, holy and honorable. Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for your good word to us this morning. It's not always easy to hear. It's not always easy for us to do. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has been given to us to give us the courage, the strength, the ability to follow you, to live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, to pursue holiness 
We ask that you would make these things so in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.